as man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Please take your Bible and open it to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can look at the Pew Bible in front of you, the black hardcover Bible. I'm reading out the Christian Standard Bible. It's on page 871. If you turn to page 871 in the black hardcover Bible, you'll find Matthew 16. We're going to look at verses 13 through 19. I know it says 13 through 20, but we're going to go 13 through 19. We'll cover verse 20 next week. Um, but yeah, Matthew 16, verse, uh, verses 13 through uh, 19. Chapter six, when I say 16, that's the big number, and 13 through 19, the verse numbers are the small numbers. This is one of the most uh, profound and really um, all-encompassing, all-encompassing passages. It has so much of the Bible, so much, of, so much guidance for your life. You really could summarize the whole Bible, and I might even attempt to do that here from this passage not only summarizing the Bible, but how it applies to our lives. This is a real hinge in the whole Bible and really for your Christian life. Jesus has been rejected by the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's fed the 5,000. He's traveled around, healed people, fought with elders, healed the Gentiles, fed 4,000 Gentiles, and um, warned us a few weeks ago about be, um, the, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees and making demands on Jesus. And now we come to Jesus on a retreat with his disciples, a two-day trip away from the region where he normally does ministry. And here's what happens. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, with our Bibles now open before us, we come to you and we ask for help. Lord, we cannot bear any good fruit apart from you. You told us that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so I cannot preach fruitfully and faithfully, and we cannot listen and hear and trust you faithfully and fruitfully apart from your work. So may your words abide in us, Lord Jesus, and may we abide in you that we might bear fruit to your Father's glory. Help us, we pray. Lord, specifically from this passage, we pray that you would plant a seed, a biblically true, gospel-fruitful gospel seed in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that it would go so deep into our soul, to the root of who we are, that it really changes the direction and trajectory of our lives. For some of us, Lord, this, these concepts are really familiar. For others of us, we've never heard these things before. But we pray that your truth would reign and that Christ would be exalted, and that we would be blessed and guided by your word now. So help us now and help us in the years and months and weeks ahead based on hearing and trusting and obeying this passage. Speak a specific word to individuals here and a general word to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Our society today in Los Angeles thinks, they think, that they're going to be okay with God when they die. They might think they're going to heaven, if they believe in heaven. They might think they're going to avoid judgment anyways. Or they might even be a little scared, but not scared to the point where it really captivates and troubles them and hinders them from living daily life. The vast majority of people, Angelinos here in L.A. and even beyond, live their lives um, thinking that they're generally okay with God or things are generally going to be okay at the end. And we know that that's not true and that's a problem because the world needs to know Jesus. That's why we exist as a church, right? That's why we, are that's why we commissioned two of our members last week to move their family across the globe for the sake of spreading the gospel because people need to know Jesus. They need to know God. They're not okay with God. And if you're not a Christian here today, Thank you for coming. We want you to know that we believe your greatest need is to know and enjoy Jesus because you're not okay with God. And apart from Jesus, we wouldn't be okay with God either. You know, kids like to mimic and imitate what they see. They often imitate their parents. Now, since my wife and I exercise authority over our kids quite regularly and firmly, our older kids were drawn to imitate this authority growing up. We can sometimes see it in the way that they speak firmly and authoritatively to their younger sisters. Clean up the table. Clean your room. Give me that toy. Because I said so. Now, we would have to often correct our kids and tell them, you're not her mom or dad. She already has a mom or dad. You are her older sister, or you are her older brother. Be the best brother you can be. Be the best sister. You don't have to bear the burden of being a parent. You can just be a sibling. Embrace being an older brother. Embrace being an older sister. That's what we tell our kids. That's what we've told them over the years. As I thought about that, I was thinking my wife and I haven't had to say that for a really long time. I think our kids have gotten the message. Now, for the world to know and experience Jesus... Christians need to do their job. They need to be who they are. They need to understand who they are, embrace who they are, and embody who they are. In other words, Christians need to embrace and embody basic Christianity. For Christians and members to know and experience Jesus, for, so, if we want, so that's what the world needs from us. If we want other Christians to grow in Christ, then what do we need to do? We need to know our job. We, didn't, we need to know who we are. We need to embrace and embody basic Christianity. If we want to be a blessing to other churches in L.A., if we want to have an impact overseas for the sake of the Great Commission among the unreached and unengaged people groups of the world, then the best thing we can do is know who we are. We need to know our job. We need to be who we are. We need to embrace and embody basic Christianity. And so that's the main goal of this passage. Embrace and embody basic Christianity. I think these verses here really summarize basic Christianity. This is the basic Christian life. And if you can get this passage, if you can grasp it enough and make it function as the centerpiece or the regular guiding light, the north star of your life, and if we can do that as a church, we will bless the world. We will bless our neighbors and we will honor Christ in the process. So embrace and embody basic Christianity that's laid out here in this passage. Now, how do we embrace and embody basic Christianity? There are four building blocks here in this passage, and it begins with four R's. So recognize, rejoice, 
rest and represent. Recognize, rejoice, rest, and represent. Recognize who Jesus is. That's verses 13 through 16. In verse 17, rejoice in God's blessing over you. In verse 18, rest in Christ. Rest in Christ who's building his church. And lastly, represent the kingdom of heaven here in Los Angeles. Represent the kingdom of heaven here in Los Angeles. Okay? So recognize, rejoice, rest, and represent. Let's look at these one at a time. So first of all, recognize Jesus. Verses 13 through 16. We pick up the story here. Again, I said Jesus is on a two-day journey away from his region in Galilee among the Jews where he is gospelizing and teaching and doing miracles and discipling people. He takes this two-day trip away to get alone on a retreat just with his disciples. And so he asked the question in verse 13. They're in Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is a uh, place that was built by... Um, by Herod, and he built that city in honor of Caesar. So they called that Caesarea. And they called it Caesarea Philippi, not to confuse it with Caesarea by the sea. Now, in this place, there was a temple to honor Caesar in Caesarea Philippi. It was a Gentile area, so Jesus could get away from Jews and Jewish controversy for this basic retreat. So there he is in Caesarea Philippi, away from all of these people, and as he's there, he's there in a place that's prominent for having a temple that honors and worships the emperor. The city is more significant than that, though, historically, because it's not just currently worshiping the, the emperor of Rome at the time, the Caesar. Previously, just before that, when the Greeks were running the empire, and it was the Greek empire, there was a Greek place of worship there to the god Pan. And the place is even called today Banyas, named after the god Pan, who was worshipped there in Caesarea Philippi. And then before that, that place was worshipped by Canaanites. They were worshipping the Baals, which is the old, one of the Old Testament gods whose arrival of Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the Old Testament. So Baal was worshipped here. Pan was worshipped here. Currently, the Caesar of Rome is worshipped there. And Jesus is there with his disciples. And he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's his question, verse 13. Now, son of man is a loaded theological term. If you read Romans 7, or Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, you'll find out that God is going to give his kingdom to the son of man. And who is the son of man? Jesus. So God is going to give his kingdom to Jesus. That's what we understand as Christians. But then when you read uh, Daniel 7, verses 15 and following, and it says, here's the interpretation, it doesn't say that the kingdom is given to a person. It says three times, the kingdom of heaven is going to be given to God's holy ones, his saints. That's the interpretation of the vision of giving it to the Son of Man. So are you giving it to the Son of Man or are you giving it to the saints? Well, that's kind of the Old Testament, just leaving the breadcrumbs and putting out the clues for you to get to a passage like this. But when Jesus used Son of Man, it wasn't just a, t a, a, a title of Messiah or divine king or who's the one who's going to receive the kingdom. Ezekiel was called Son of Man again and again and again. And he was not looked at as the Messiah, the king who's going to bring in the kingdom. So Son of Man is not really, at least at that time, a, 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 a phrase to tip you off that he's claiming to be the Messiah, at least not necessarily. It was intentionally vague. So Jesus says, okay, survey, what do the people say? Who do the people say that I am? So they have different views of Jesus. Here are the views back then. John the Baptist, who had that view? That Jesus is John the Baptist. Who had that view? Anyone remember? Herod, right? Earlier on here in Matthew, Herod had that view. 
that, that John the Baptist was raised from the dead, and that's why he's doing these miracles. Okay? Jesus had a tie to John, but John didn't do miracles like Jesus. So that's one view that Jesus is John the Baptist. The second view here, look at verse 14. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Now, why, why, why might Jesus be confused with Elijah? Because Elijah did, unlike John the Baptist, Elijah did miracles. He had, he had miraculous provision for a widow. He raised a girl from the dead, a young girl. Jesus did those two miracles as well. Not only that, it was prophesied in Malachi, the very last prophet, that Elijah would come. And Jesus is doing these miracles. Maybe Jesus is Elijah. So there's good reason to maybe guess Jesus is Elijah. And others, it says in verse 14, others say he's Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah? Jeremiah was a powerful prophet, a, um, a sharp and divisive prophet, and he had a lot of opposition during his prophetic ministry. And Jesus has the same opposition. So maybe Jesus reminds them of Jeremiah, or he might be one of the other prophets. And Jesus is certainly prophetic in his ministry. He certainly speaks the truth. He doesn't fear people. He was divisive. He did miracles like Elijah. He is fulfilling prophecy, and he is connected to John the Baptist. So these guesses are not all terrible. They're just not right. Who do people say Jesus is today? Any guesses? What, what do you guys hear from people? Either you think this, or what you hear from non-Christian friends of who they think Jesus is. Let me hear two or three from you guys. A good man. What else? A guardian angel. A good teacher, a fraud. Okay, yeah. So Jesus could be a good teacher, a fraud. Maybe he's a myth. He's a you know a character like Santa Claus. Just people made him up. Sorry, just realized uh, might have outed a lot of uh, parents. Um, nothing, kids. Um, if your parents want to keep lying to you, that's on them. Uh, anyways. Um, a myth, so maybe, maybe Jesus is a myth and he's not real. Uh, maybe he's just a prophet, so he's just a prophet or a judge. Or maybe he's a God among many gods, that there are going to be many gods and Jesus is one among many. The Mormons think that. Maybe he's going to have a world. He's a model of, a, of, of someone who does God's will and he gets his own world. And if you do your, your Mormon thing, then you'll get your own world as well. There's a lot of different views about who Jesus is. But who is Jesus really? If this first point is recognize Jesus, who is Jesus? Look at verse 15. But you, Jesus asked them, now talking to the disciples, you all, but you all, he asked them, who do you all say that I am? Who is Jesus really? And the answer comes in verse 16. At least here's Peter's guess. And he's not really that doubtful. He's pretty confident. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's who you are. You are the Messiah, the promised Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Let's just think about, let's break down this answer. Jesus is the Messiah. What does it mean that he's the Messiah? Messiah means anointed one. I don't know if you heard that in Psalm 2 when uh, Royce was here reading Psalm 2 to us, that the world is against God, Yahweh, and his anointed one, his Messiah, his Mashiach. So God's anointed one. And who were the, who were the people anointed in the Old Testament? What are the different roles that were anointed? Priests, prophets, and kings, right? Prophets, priests, and kings. And most prominently, it referred, especially when they were thinking about the Messiah, they were thinking about a king, the kingly aspect of the Messiah, who would come to set up God's kingdom, who would restore Israel and all the promises of the Old Testament, who would overthrow their oppressors. And who's oppressing Israel in this time in history? 
the Roman Empire. So here a Messiah, a king would come to restore Israel, to restore true worship of God, to restore faithfulness, to rule over the nations, and to cast out and throw off the chains of the Roman Empire. That's what the Messiah would do. Jesus, you are the anointed one of God. You are the Messiah. Okay, so that's one answer. He's the Messiah. And then there's another explanation here, and this is tied to Messiah. You are the Messiah, the what? The son of the living God, the son of God. Now, living God, maybe living because there they are worshiping where Baal used to worship, where Baal used to be worshiped. But who worships Baal anymore in, in Jesus' time? Nobody or barely anybody. It's a dead religion. What about Pan, the Greek god Pan? Who worships the Greek god Pan while Jesus is standing there in Caesarea Philippi? Is that an active religion there? No. That, that religion is dead and gone, largely speaking. And now they're worshiping Caesar. And in that midst, Peter is declaring, Jesus, you are the son of the living God. Not some dead old God of a dead religion that's gone. No, you are the son of the living God. Now, when you hear son of God, there are three good answers of what you should think as a Christian. When you hear son of God, what do you think as a Christian? I want to hear all three answers from you guys. Second person of the Trinity. Okay. Says the seminary student. Good. What are the other two? True Israel. Ooh, corporate Israel. And then one more? Says the pastor's wife. One more. One more? Son of God. Son of David, yes. Son of David, says the song leader. Thank you. Um, praise God. Yeah, but so, so and I, I think the way you should, the order you should think of these as you're hearing this initially, because we're hearing this with all the Bible and historical theology, but when you hear this, you should first think Davidic king, son of David, okay? That's your first thought. The Messiah is the son of David. In, in 2 Samuel 7, 14, God promised David that he would give him a son and that, you know, David wanted to build a house for for God, God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a household, a dynasty, and your sons, will. I will make them my sons. He will be my son, he says. And so you, pick, you hear that in Psalm 2, where it says, today you have become my son, I have become your father. I'm not sure if that's Psalm 2. Well, Psalm, Psalm 2 is a declaration of the sonship. It's also in other Psalms as well. I think Psalm 110. But here, um, Psalm, in, in Psalm 2 and, and, Dan, and, and uh, 2 Samuel 7, the son of God is the Davidic king, the son of David. He is the king of Israel, the Messiah, the anointed one. And so, so Jesus is the one who inherits the promises of David. That's who he is. That's who Peter's saying he is. You are the true king of Israel, the true son of David, the one who's going to be the human king of God's kingdom. But it goes beyond that in Matthew. And like one person said already, it also refers to true Israel. I think you should think of this second that Jesus is the true Israel. You're saying, where is that in the Bible? Go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus and uh, Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt because Herod is killing all the babies two years old and under. Remember that? And so um, he goes to Egypt, and then he comes back out of Egypt, back to Israel. And here's what um, Matthew 2, 15 says. He stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled as Jesus comes back. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And that is quoting um, Hosea 11.1. Hosea 11.1. And when you look at Hosea 11.1, who's the son he's talking about? Israel. God called Israel out of Egypt, right? 
If you look at Exodus 4.22, when God is calling Moses and sending, commissioning Moses to go to Egypt, he says to Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my firstborn son go, my firstborn son Israel go. And if he doesn't let my firstborn son go, I'm going to take his firstborn son. And you remember that in the Passover plague, right? So, so the, the son of God in the Old Testament is Israel, the nation of Israel. And here in Matthew 2.15, Matthew is drawing from Hosea 11 one saying, you know, true Israel, the son of God, you know who that is? Jesus, the son of the living God, the true people of God, the true Israel, new covenant Israel, if you like. Jesus is corporate Israel. He is true Israel. All of it is embodied in him. So when you hear, son, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, the son of the living God, the Davidic king, the true Israel. And lastly, to Ross's answer, God the son, the second person of the Trinity. Now, Peter did not think that most, almost for sure did not think that here. But by the, but you already have in Matthew, as Jesus is doing these miracles, sometimes they pause, like he'll still, he'll still the sea or he'll walk on water and then they'll pause. And what will they do to Jesus? Do you know what they'll do to Jesus? They'll worship him. And these are Jews, monotheistic Jews who only worship the true God. And you think, why are they, is, is, is Matthew merely saying that they're revering him and he's taking it, just pushing it a little bit further to use the word worship? What is going on? It's a little unclear. Why are they worshiping a man on the boat? It's already pointing to the fact that he's more than a man, right? But certainly by the very end of this book, you have it clear. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name, not the names, in the name, singular, the name of who? The Father. And who's the Father? He's what? He's who? He's God. The name of God. The name of the Father. And the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 20, 19. In the book of Matthew, Matthew is already pointing you to the full and final trajectory of Jesus, the Son of the living God. Not only is he the Davidic king, not only is he true Israel, he is God. God the Son. So that people who follow this son of the living God are baptized in the name of God, namely the name of the son, the son of God. And so the Messiah, so for, for Peter, he might not have grasped all that there. I don't think he did. For us today, if you're here today, Christian or non-Christian, it's important that you recognize, the point here is recognize Jesus, right? Recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Recognize him as the Davidic king who's going to fulfill all those promises. Recognize him as true Israel, that all the true people of God are incorporated and united in him. And recognize that Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And so we sing songs like, you are Lord of lords and King of kings. You are mighty God, Lord of everything. You're Emmanuel. You're the great I am, God. You're the great I am. You're the Prince of Peace who is the Lamb. You're the living God. You're my saving grace. You will reign forever. You are ancient of days. You are Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. You're my Savior, Messiah, Redeemer, and friend. You're my Prince of Peace. The song says, and I will live my life for you. I will recognize Jesus. I will live for Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, how do you know Jesus is the Messiah and God the Son and Savior? How can you Christians believe a book that exaggerates stories? I mean, haven't you heard of tall tales before? That people like build on these myths and start making things up and, and things grow out of proportion. And you guys are believing a really old book that has no evidence that Jesus really is God the Son and the Messiah and the fulfillment of all these old Jewish prophecies. Is he really the God of the Jews? 
Well, if you're thinking that, that's a great question. How can you believe a Bible that has, that's outdated, built on myths, and um, is clearly not God's word? If that's what you're thinking as not a Christian, uh, that, that, that is a great question. Let, let's just think about that and break that down just for a second here, okay? Um, first of all, the Bible, if you read it with, um, with, with giving it the benefit of the doubt, and what I mean by it is not just trying to look for contradictions everywhere, you'll find that the Bible is actually coherent, okay? But beyond that, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the stories about Jesus, these miracles, feeding 5,000, the virgin birth, um, raising the dead, Jesus, most importantly, Jesus' own bodily resurrection, that he died on the cross, and on the third day, he rose physically from the dead. That's the claim of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all make that claim. So if you're like, well, why would Christians believe that? That's just not scientific. Who rises from the dead? Well, you got to understand that these things were written within the same generation of the eyewitnesses. This is not written hundreds of years later. I think the book Julius Caesar, or like, you know, the, our best information on Julius Caesar is like 900 years after. That's our, our earliest manuscripts. The, we have manuscripts from, from within that generation that tell us that they, that, that they believe these things. So the first reason why I think you should at least give this a good uh, shot of believing is because if they wrote this within the same generation, all it would take is people to come out and contradict it. The body's still in the tomb. That's all you got to say, right? I was there with the 5,000. He didn't feed us. We all brought our own lunch. It was all good, right? I mean, it doesn't take, it's not hard to contradict these things when you're propagating these very publicly in written fashion in that same generation. That's number one. Number two, uh, and lastly here, um, the greatest miracle and the, the, the one that I think is the linchpin for all people to believe in Jesus is that Jesus rose from the dead. And in these writings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first people to see Jesus rise from the dead and be the first witnesses were not men, they were women. They were women. Now, in the Roman Empire at that time, women were not allowed to even testify in the court of law. They were considered unreliable for legal purposes. That's so uh, sexist, right? And um, misogynistic and um, demeaning of women. But that was the culture there. And so if you're making up a religion and you're just putting up all these stories to make up Christianity, you don't put that the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were women unless they really were women. So why did they write it? Not because there's some big conspiracy theory and they're trying to make up this lie that, that can convince and, and dupe the whole Roman Empire that Jesus is the son of God. No, they wrote it because it happened. And so if you're not a Christian, at least for those reasons, I'd... I'd um, plead with you and instruct you to reconsider whether you would reject Jesus based on the Bible. Now, how should we recognize Jesus as Christians? In, in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50, you don't have to turn there, but there's, Jesus is eating with a Pharisee, and Jesus is the honored guest there, and he comes in, and then there's a woman who is known to be a great sinner in the, in the town, and she comes to Jesus and starts wiping Jesus' dirty feet with her tears and her hair. And it gets super awkward. As they're try Imagine trying to have a conversation with someone while someone's weeping and crying at their feet and you're trying to talk to the guy while his feet are being washed. Or you're the one having your feet washed and you're trying to talk to other people and you're having a, a table conversation. That's what was happening. And then eventually people are like, Jesus is clearly not a prophet. He would know that this woman's a sinner. It's so obvious. But the fact that Jesus is letting this happen this is so inappropriate. And then Jesus challenges the Pharisee and says, Simon, like, um, when I came, did you even give me water to wash with? Did you greet me? Did you hug me? You didn't do any of that. This woman, hasn't, this woman has been washing me with her tears. She's been wiping my feet with her hair. 
She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. And then he says, uh, he says to the woman, he says, who do you think will love God more? The one who's forgived, uh, or not love God. Who do you think will be forgive? Who do you think will love the benefactor, the benefactor more? The one who's forgiven five hundred thousand dollars of debt or fifty thousand dollars of debt? Who who would love more? The one who's forgiven what? More, right? And so Jesus says, yes. The one who's forgiven more will love more. And then he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. She believed in who Jesus was. Jesus forgave her. But what did Simon? What did the Pharisee do? Did he recognize Jesus? He did not recognize Jesus. He thought it was a good teacher. But the whole time he was there, and even as Jesus being his honored guest, he was dishonoring who Jesus really was, right? To the point where he would look at Jesus with disdain that he would entertain this woman adoring him the way she was. So the question for you is, are you more like the woman or the Pharisee when it comes to Jesus? Do you understand that you're a great sinner and that he is a great savior? Or is Jesus just a great teacher? Now, if you're not a Christian, you need to understand the most important message of Christianity, and it's this, that God the Father sent his son into this world to become the savior of the world. He lived for sinners. He died for sinners. He died for his people who are sinners, and he rose from the dead. And why does he need to do that? Because we are sinners who are damned and condemned to death for our sins. And we are accountable to God because he created us. He's our creator. He's our maker. So we owe him. We are obligated to him. And we are accountable to him. So God sends his son, Jesus, to save us from our sins, to save us from our rebellion, and to restore us to truly knowing and enjoying God as his creatures on this earth, as humans, made in his image. So God is calling you, if you're not a Christian, to repent from your sins, to repent of the way you think about Jesus, and to trust in Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as King, as God, and as the treasure of your life. Repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. Children, you need to understand, children, that Jesus is not a myth. Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the Savior, and he can save you from your sins, even if you're three years old, even if you're four years old. God can save you from your sins, so trust in Jesus. For church family, let's regularly confess Jesus. We read Article 7, read over the confession of faith. Let's sing about Jesus. Let's preach about Jesus. Let's share the gospel regularly to remind ourselves who Jesus is. That's number one, okay? Recognize who Jesus is. If you're going to embrace and embody basic Christianity, Christianity, you need to recognize who Jesus is. Secondly, okay? Second one is rejoice in blessing. Now, all the next, the next ones of these are all just one verse each, okay? Recognize or rejoice in blessing. Look at verse 17. So here's Peter saying, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus turns right back around to Peter and says to Peter, you are, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So what, what does he say about Peter? Peter is what? blessed. Peter is blessed. Hashtag blessed. Now, now this blessed is not the way people use like a hashtag blessed on social media. Count your blessings. They're not just, oh, praise God, I have air today. Praise God, I have a meal. Praise God, I got to greet a friend today. Those are all blessings, but this blessed is charged or chock full of theological salvific significance. The opposite of being blessed is being cursed. For him to declare that Simon is blessed is to say, if you read Matthew 5, 3 through 10, where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are um, the humble, blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Blessed, blessed, blessed. What does he say? What, what are the blessed, what's characteristic of the blessed? In uh, Matthew 5, 3 and Matthew 5, 10, 
Blessed, I'll just take Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? Kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is yours if you're blessed. So it's not just, everyone here, all humans are blessed under God's common grace, right? That's what we're talking about when we say you are blessed. We're saying that the kingdom of heaven is yours. You are part of God's kingdom people. You are not cursed. You are not damned. You are saved from the judgment of God and from your sins because God has chosen to bless you. That's what it means to be blessed here. And so Simon Peter is blessed because he understands who Jesus is. Now, where does that come from? Does it come from Peter's insight? Is Peter smarter than other people? Is he more insightful than other people? Where does this come from? Look at verse 17. It doesn't come from what? Flesh and blood. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It doesn't come from himself. It doesn't come from his own ingenuity or insight or thoughtfulness. Where does it come from? The Father in heaven. God revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If you're a Christian today and you recognize Jesus, why do you recognize Jesus? Is it from your own flesh and blood? No, it's because God revealed it to you. It didn't come from you. When I think about my own salvation, I think about my Sunday school teacher, Elaine Ormeo, who shared the gospel with me in 1989. Where did she get the gospel? She got it from her dad. Where did her dad get, get the gospel? He got it from his dad. Where did his dad get the gospel? He got it from American missionaries who went to the Philippines in the 19-teens. And where did they get the gospel? And if you just keep tracing back just historically, the gospel is coming from Jesus and the apostles, right? So, so just, the, and the Bible, who, who translated the Bible? And then who opens the eyes of the individual to actually believe the gospel? Jesus does. God does. It comes from the Spirit and the Father, not from street smarts, not from experience, not from education, not from wealth, not from status, not from social class, not from reputation, not from networking connections, not from your religion, not from your spiritual disciplines, not from your good works, not from a devout, being part of a devout Christian family, not from your Bible knowledge, not from your theological knowledge, not from your book reading, not from faithful teachers and pastors. If you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's because the Father has revealed that to you. And you are blessed because of that. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. Think of Judas, who's in hell now, burning for his sins. And your non-Christian friends, who are blind right now. Or your non-Christian family, who have, been, who have entered into everlasting punishment. Even in your lifetime. Why are you not there? Why are you not on that track? It's not because of you. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. God the Father in heaven revealed that to you, and that's why you believe in Jesus. It's from God the Father. In Matthew eleven twenty five through 27, you, you get the same theme, and we, we covered this in a previous sermon, but let me just read to you the verses. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. God has revealed these things to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. So why do you know the Father and the Son and the Spirit? Because the Father, Son, and Spirit desired and chose to reveal themselves to you. So what should we do? Rejoice. Who should we give credit to? To God. We should humble ourselves before God. Do you remember the story in Luke 17? Verses 11 through 19 of the 10 lepers that Jesus healed. He heals 10 lepers. 
right? Nobody wants to touch them. No one wants to be near them. Jesus comes to them. Jesus heals 10 lepers. And he, the way he heals them, it says, he doesn't actually heal them in his presence. He just says, go show yourselves to the priests. Go get the, go get the approval that you're clean. So they walk there as lepers. They go to the priests. They're declared clean. And somehow on the way, they were healed. They were cleansed. They were restored. And out of the 10 lepers, only one comes back to thank Jesus. And Jesus says, didn't I heal 10 of you? Why is there only one who came back? And this one is not even a Jew, an Israelite. He's a foreigner who doesn't know the Hebrew scriptures, who doesn't know the God of the Old Testament. And he's coming back to the Jewish Messiah, thanking him. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, thank God for cleansing you. Thank God for changing you. Thank God for opening your eyes. I've talked to people even recently who want to believe in Jesus, but don't believe in Jesus. But you do. Why? Because of the Father. So humble yourself before God's grace. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, for who makes you superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Brothers and sisters, rejoice in your salvation and God's revelation. Now, I was trying to think of sin in my life. Let me just do some soul work here. Oftentimes, we're indifferent to our saving faith, right? I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian since 1989. I just, I'm used to it now. I've been longer a Christian than not a Christian. It's easy for me to be indifferent and not rejoice in the fact that God revealed himself to me. And I was thinking, where does my indifference to my saving faith come from? It comes from me thinking, maybe, that I'm deserving of this. I've been a Christian for a long time. I deserve to be a Christian. I, I wouldn't say that out loud, but functionally in my heart, maybe I believe that. Maybe I believe that so much that I think God's job is not to reveal himself to dead sinners, but God's job is to inform me because he owes it to me. And so now I'm starting to think that maybe God is obligated to share it with me because he has to save me. And that's not even true, right? Does God have to save me? No. Does he do more than inform me? Yes. Am I deserving of it? Do I, do I have a right to this knowledge and revelation? No. And so is it right for me to be indifferent to my saving faith? No. And so I need to repent, and you might need to repent, not only of being indifferent, but of belittling God and exalting yourself as if you deserve to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You don't deserve to know that. I don't deserve to know that. God doesn't owe us. Church family, remind one another regularly of the privilege of knowing Jesus. What did Jesus say? Don't boast that demons listen to you and obey you. Rejoice what? that your names are written in the book of life. Rejoice that you're a Christian. Children and non-Christians, you're saying, okay, well, if God is the one who reveals it, what do I do? Here's what you do. Cry out to God in desperation. Don't try to earn it with God. Just call out to God and ask him to reveal himself to you. Keep reading your Bible. Faith comes by hearing. Keep reading and listening to God and ask God to show himself to you. Here's good news for you from Jeremiah 29, 13. God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. And if you're not seeking God with all your heart, just do it with whatever heart you have and ask God to give you more, more heart to seek him. All right, so we want to embrace and embody basic Christianity by recognizing who Jesus is, by rejoicing in the blessing that we have received and not earned. Thirdly, we want to rest on Jesus. Verse 18, we want to rest on Jesus. And so 
He says, Peter, you're blessed. God showed this to you. And then Jesus continues. And I also say to you, you said that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter comes back, or Jesus comes back to Peter and says, you are Peter. And what does the name Peter mean? Rock. You are rock. And in, Greek, in uh, Aramaic, which they're most likely speaking, you are kepha, Cephas. You are kepha, rock. And on this kepha, same word there, but in Greek it's Petra and Petras. Um, you are Peter. And on this rock, Petra, Kepha, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail or will not overcome, will not overpower it. So we want to rest on Jesus. Why do we want to rest on Jesus? Whose church is it? Whose church is it? Jesus's. Who's the builder? Who's the one building it? Jesus. So um, we are not the primary builders. We are not, it's not our church ultimately. So we can rest on Jesus. But let's think about it. There's more to unpack in this verse than just those, those basic points. Knowing Jesus will help you. So he says, um, you are the Christ. And he says, you are Peter. This is interesting. But, and John, John Calvin opens up his systematic theology with this point. Uh, that um, we, we, Theology is knowing God and knowing yourself. It's both. The more you know God, the more you'll know yourself. And the more you know yourself, the more you'll know God. And so when Peter recognizes you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus says, you are Peter. Now you know who you are because who you are is in relation to who God is. And you get to know more about yourself when you know God. That's interesting. Knowing Jesus helps you to know yourself in the light of Jesus and by Jesus's revelation. Now, um, who's the rock here or what is the rock? On this rock, I will build my church. I'm going to contend that Peter is the rock. Peter is the foundation for this building project that Jesus is about to commence on. Peter is the foundation. Peter's the rock. Now, some people say, no, Peter's not the rock. Um, Jesus is the rock. That could be true. It doesn't make sense here. He says, you are Peter, you are stone or rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. It, it, it doesn't work on the play on words, I don't think. And secondly, um, Jesus is building on the rock. So he's not saying, I'm the rock and I'm building on myself. I mean, he could say that and mix metaphors. Revelation does that. He's the lion and the lamb. So revelation very intentionally mixes metaphors. Matthew is, I mean, but generally that's, unless it's really a clear mixture of metaphors, you generally let, keep the metaphors clear. So for him to say, I am the rock and I will build my church on myself. It, it's a, I think that mixture makes me think, uh, I don't think it's Jesus, though it's certainly tied to Jesus. And then some people say, well, it's Peter's confession because Peter just said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And that's the rock. I, again, that's possible. I think there's a middle way here. Some people say it's Peter, and therefore Peter has, ap he's the Pope, the first Pope, and now there's going to be more Popes that come from him, and there's papal infallibility because he's the rock. I think that goes too far on the other, in the other direction. And I, I have a Roman Catholic background, so that resonates with me, Roman Catholic background. That resonates with me over here, but um, Peter was corrected. Peter is not infallible. Um, he doesn't have, yeah, and, and there's, no, there's nothing in the Bible about papal succession. But I think Peter is the rock because it is a play on words. He is saying, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church. And then he's going to give the keys of the kingdom to who? Peter. Not to the apostles here. He's only giving the keys to Peter. So I, I think as he's building the church on this rock and he's giving the keys of the kingdom to this person and his name is Rock, I just think everything clearly points. And almost all the commentators today will almost all universally agree that it's the rock. If you like, you could say it's Peter who makes the right confession if you want to kind of combine them. Because not just Peter in and of himself. Because next week we're going to learn about Peter's stupidity and satanic thinking. Okay? So, I mean, he's just going to turn. He's gonna, Peter's going to, Jesus is going to, he calls him the rock here. And then next, next passage, he's going to call him Satan. 
Okay? So just know that the rock is not Satan just by virtue of equating the, the, all of them. But um, Peter is not infallible, as you're going to find out really quick. But here, Peter is the rock. And so the church is built on the foundation of Peter. And if you look at Ephesians 2, verse 20, it's not just Peter who's the foundation. It eventually spreads to the foundation being the apostles. And then when you see the church growing in Acts chapter 242, they, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. So it is tied to the confession, and it is tied to, to the apostles and not just Peter. But here in this passage, it's, it's starting here with Peter as the story is unfolding, okay? Now, um, the church is Jesus' church. So he says, on this rock, I will build my church. So we, we, he builds on Peter, on Peter's teaching, on, on the apostles, on apostolic teaching, um, but it's his church. It's not my church, PJ's church. It's not the pastor's church. Um, this church is not even ultimately your church. It's not the, the denomination's church. It's not the tradition's church. It's not this country's church. It is Jesus's church. This is his church. And what does Jesus say he'll do in verse 18? What's Jesus going to do? He will what? He'll build his church. Christ will build his church. His church is his assembly, the assembly of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, it was the assembly of Yahweh. So there's already a parallel between Jesus here and God of the Old Testament. But here's what I want you guys to, to think about. So look up here for a second because I want to just give you an overview of the whole Bible now. Okay. Um, Jesus, the Messiah, was called, and there's a prophecy that they're going to rebuild the temple. And Jesus doesn't say he's going to rebuild the temple. He says he's going to rebuild the what? The church. But the church in Ephesians 2 and elsewhere is the what? It is the temple. So... God, the, the whole story of the Bible is about God wanting to, to live with his redeemed people who rejoice in his mercy forever. That's the story of the Bible. God wants to live with his redeemed people in his kingdom and enjoy his mercy and grace forever. That's the goal. And so God creates the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve live there. And who's walking there with Adam and Eve? God, they live in the garden, they live in the land, they live in the temple, because the temple is where God dwells and where man dwells. And so there, God and man live together. But Adam and Eve, uh, they, they, they sin. And so the, the end, well, sorry, that's, that's Genesis. When you go to Revelation, the end is the new garden of Eden, is really what it is, Revelation 21 and 22. It's the new earth, the new creation. Now, in the middle of these two, old Eden and new Eden, they sin, and then God says, build a tabernacle. And then after a tabernacle, he tells Solomon, build a temple, and then go enter the promised land. I'm going to live in the land, and I'm going to live in the temple, and I'm going to live in Jerusalem. And then after that, he kicks them out of the land and destroys the temple and destroys Jerusalem. And so now they're out of the land. And then God promises, I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to rebuild the temple, and I'm going to live with you. And that's kind of the end of the Old Testament, that promise. And then they come back to the land, but there is no rebuilt temple in the way that Ezekiel 40 through 48 um, is described. And that's kind of where the Old Testament ends. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, I will build my church. Huh. So this temple that this Messiah is going to build is not a building explicitly or properly. It's a people. He will build his church. And so now Jesus is building his church, fulfilling all these Old Testament promises. He's building his church. And then when Jesus comes and returns, once all his people are saved, Jesus is going to come at the end and consummate his people. It says that the bride is going to come down from heaven, the new city, the people of God, and the city are kind of mixed together, mixture of metaphors, city and people. In Revelation 22, it's going to come down from heaven, and God will dwell with men. Actually, it's Revelation 21. God will come down and dwell with humanity in God's temple that Jesus built, his people 
that Jesus built. That's the story of the Bible. Jesus built his church his, um, by his word and his spirit and his people. And the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not what? Will not overpower it. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, the gates of Hades, is that demonic powers will not overpower the church? Maybe. The gates of, Hades is the place of the dead. And the gates are the entrance and exit of the place of the dead. So I would say that the gates of Hades are the death will not overcome the church. And the gates of Hades, the, the fortification and the entrance and exit of the gates of Hades, that's, that's meant to protect the city and all the residents inside, will not overcome the church. And I know this is debated. I, I, I'm running out of time here, so I'm not going to defend my view here. You can feel free to ask me after. But I, I think that the imagery here is the fact that the gates of hell, it's, there's a fortification of death. Because Jesus is about to build his what? Church, which means he's going to save his people from their sins, right? That's Matthew 1.21. And then at the end of Matthew, he's going to commission them to make disciples. Well, where are these disciples at? Where do they dwell? In the realm of the what? In the dead. They're dead. They're spiritually dead. And Christ is going to build his church. And the gates of hell will not have a successful defense. They will not overcome. The, 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 the gates will not overcome the attack of the church to invade the realm of the dead and pull out people from death to build the temple of God so that God's people will dwell in God's place forever and ever and ever. You see how the whole Bible hinges right here? Not just for who God is and what he's doing, but for who you are and who the church is and what we're doing as a church family? Do you understand our lives in light of this cosmic story? That this is what we do. This is who we are. This is what we devote our lives to. This is why the church is so important. To you and to me as a Christian, it's central to our lives. This is the institution that takes people out of death and brings them into life so that Christ builds his church. And so what do we do? The church will be victorious. Jesus can't be defeated. He commissions his church. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus will not lose. And he'll save people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. I love this. You guys know Philippians 2. Philippians 2. I just want you, I want you to get a feel for how much Jesus is the one building, that he's the servant. We know Jesus as a servant, right? I didn't, he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2 talks about how he humbled himself and became a servant to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? Jesus is the servant who came to die for his people and live for his people. But is Jesus still serving us today? He's present with us. I will go with you, right, as you, as you make disciples, Matthew 28, 20. It says in 1 Peter 4 that we serve and we speak in the strength that he supplies and in the words that he supplies. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, our fighter verse a few weeks ago, um, that God, uh, the grace, the power of Christ is working in us in our weaknesses, right? So is, is Christ building us now and building the church now? Is he serving us now, yes or no? Yes. yes. Now get this. Marshall told me this. There's a... I'm leaking some insight from a future Desiring God book, but I can't, so good, I was like, I have to do this. Okay, so Jesus, Jesus served, Jesus is serving, but look at this, this is crazy. Luke 12, you have to turn here because this is just so, so good. Luke 12, 37. Luke 12, 37. This is mind-blowing. So I'm even off-roading for my sermon a little bit just because it's so juicy. Luke 12, 37. Blessed, so this is speaking about the second coming of Jesus. Blessed will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. So the second coming of Jesus, when he comes, blessed, saved are the servants who are alert when he comes. And this is crazy now. Truly I tell you, he will get ready. He, that's the, the, the master. The master will get ready. 
The master will have them recline at the table and the master will come and what? Not just in the incarnation is Jesus serving. In the new heavens and the new earth, our master whose face shines like the sun and his robe is dazzling white that John almost feels like he's dead. This master is gonna take off his robe, get the washcloth, put it around his waist and serve us for all eternity. Wow. He's not just a servant in the incarnation. He's not just serving us now. The glorified Christ when he returns will serve us for all eternity. He's the one who builds his church. Death can't stop him. Satan can't stop him. We can't stop him. No one can stop him. So the application here is rest on Jesus. He will build his church. Stop striving and acting like it's in your own strength that you're going to grow, that people are going to get saved, that this church is going to grow, that other churches in LA are going to grow, that the missionaries we're sending halfway or all the way across the world are going to have a successful work and that we're going to support them well. Jesus will build his church. He serves. So let's repent from restlessly working as if we're the ultimately responsible builder, wise in our own eyes, and as if God is indifferent or uninvolved in our lives and in our church and our churches. Christ will build his church. It's inevitable. Death and Satan fight, but it's impossible. He will save his people from all groups because he's unstoppable. So embrace and embody basic Christianity by recognizing who Jesus is, rejoicing in the fact that he has blessed you, resting in the fact that he is the one who builds the church. He is the one who serves and builds, not you ultimately, though you do some work. And fourthly, and here's our work, represent. Represent the kingdom of heaven in Los Angeles. That's our goal. That's our, that's our job. Verse 19. Going back to Matthew 16. Jesus says, I will give you the keys, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So here, who has the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Peter. And where's Peter standing? In what city? Caesarea, Philippi. He's on earth. On earth is a man standing who has the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So you have heaven on earth. You have something of heaven, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, here on earth in Peter, with Peter. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. So Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom of Peter. The keys are for binding and for loosing. That means that, that whoever has these keys, they have the authority of heaven to declare and receive kingdom people based on kingdom standards and the kingdom's message, and the king's message, okay? So the people with the keys of the kingdom, Peter here, he gets to declare and receive people into the kingdom, He's authorized with the, with the keys from the king to do that based on kingdom standards. So Jesus tells, so he gives Peter the keys of the kingdom on earth to declare and decide who's in the kingdom of heaven and who's not. Now, Peter doesn't mean, he, it doesn't mean he's Lord because it's whatever has been uh, bound on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever's loosed on earth will have been loosed in heaven. In other words, Peter has to correspond to what God's word actually says. You get a, a picture of this. If, you, if that's a little confusing with the keys analogy, you can look at John chapter 20, verse 23. Um, let me read it for you. John 20. John 20, um, 23 says this. Uh, talk, talking to the apostles as he gives them the spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
so that doesn't mean we could just, I could be bitter towards someone and say, oh, I don't like you. I'm going to retain your sins. You're going to hell. We don't, like, Peter doesn't have that power. He gets to preach the gospel. And if someone believes the gospel, he says, your sins are forgiven. And if they don't believe the gospel, he says, your sins are retained. You're still not in the kingdom. And he does that with, with Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8, if you want to just see an example of someone who professes faith in Jesus. And then he says, he, he makes a declaration on him. So the point here is that you're not just, it's not like God gives humans this ultimate authority to just decide whoever they want goes to heaven. They have to correspond with the, with the kingdom of heaven. But still, that is exercised here on earth through sinful humans. Okay? So the keys are given to Peter. In Matthew 18, 18, look at Matthew 18, 18. It says, um, truly I tell you, whatever you, he's talking now, not just Peter, but all the disciples, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now he's saying that to all the apostles. So now it's not just Peter who has the keys, but who else has the keys? The apostles. And then if you go back to verse 17, it's not just the apostles, but it's the, the church. So who has the keys of the kingdom today? The church. The 118 members of Bethany Baptist Church. And whatever church you're from, if you're not from this church, if you're a member of another church, you exercise the keys of the kingdom. What are the keys of the kingdom? Jonathan Lehman writes, uh, quoting my, well, Michael Horton writes first, through preaching, baptism, and admission, or refusal of admission to the Lord's Supper, communion, the keys of the kingdom are exercised. So baptism, Lord's Supper, and um, preaching. Here's what Jonathan Lehman says. I would say that the church on earth has the power of the keys to preach the gospel and to bind and loose people to that gospel. According to their credible professions of faith, an uncredible profession will result in either refusal of admission or church discipline. What he means by that is excommunication. But the point is, who receives people into membership? Who excommunicates out of membership? Who, who, um, who does the Lord's Supper? Who authorizes baptism and Lord's Supper? The answer is the local church today. Back then it was Peter, and then Peter and the apostles, and now it's the local church. So, brothers and sisters, we'll get to this as we get to Matthew 18, but the point here is represent the kingdom of heaven in L.A. as a member of the local church. Application, if you're not a, Christ, if you're not a member of a church, join a church. Join a church, because you don't get to exercise, you don't declare who's a Christian and not just by yourself. That's what we do with our Lord's Supper, right? And then as a church, what does it mean for us as a church? Confess Jesus together. Know the gospel and Christian conversion. And then as a church family, I'm speaking now to the 118 members. Listen to me, 118 members of BBC. Collectively receive credible gospel confessors based on a gospel confession of repentance and faith. When you see people who are truly Christian and want to submit to that ministry here, your job every members meeting is to collectively receive them. And your job is also to collectively refuse them if they're not credible in their profession of faith. And if they're already a member who are showing now unrepentance, it is your job to collectively revoke that affirmation of faith. Okay? So your job, BBC, is to collectively receive affirmations of faith credibly, to collectively refuse uncredible affirmations of faith. And those who are already part of their church, our job is to collectively revoke that affirmation of faith and kingdom citizenship if they refuse to repent and follow Jesus. That's not the pastor's job. That's not the denomination's job. That's your job. And to be honest, some of you members are not showing up to do your job. How often do we have members meetings? Every other month, right? Do all of our 118 members come? No, but should they? It's their responsibility. It's your responsibility to collectively exercise the keys of the kingdom. Um, another application here is to raise, and res raise your respect and esteem for the local church. 
Mark Dever says the church is the church is dear to Jesus, and if you love if you love Him, you'll love the church will become dear to you too. The church is dear to Jesus, and if you love Jesus, the church will become dear to you as well. So center your life on the local church. You know what? I just want to commend you. I, as I look at Bethany Baptist Church and I look at your lives, so many of you are and are, con- are increasingly centering your lives on the local church. And that, in, I take that in a healthy way, as long as it's not idolatrous. I take that as a way of you centering your lives more and more on Jesus. And I want to encourage you to keep centering your life on the local church. It doesn't have to be this local church. Grab the yellow sheet. Find a local church where you're at. But center your life, your family, your marriage, your singleness, your work your ministry, your neighboring, center it on a local gospel preaching church. That's basic Christianity. This is not advanced, mature Christianity. This is basic Christianity. Let me make something that's a little bit more advanced. A call to pastor, call to future pastors. If you haven't thought about being a pastor, maybe some of you here should be a pastor. Some of you brothers in Christ should probably become a pastor. Because there's, to devote your life to serving and leading a local church that does this is a great privilege. Some of you should consider being a pastor. And some of you should maybe take a baby step by taking our, doing our pastoral internship. Just another side note here. But to think about these keys of the kingdom, not just for a sermon, but for five months and read all kinds of papers and write, which is not fun. Um, but there's fruit at the end of it, right? Um, I would encourage some of you to consider doing that. But brothers and sisters, we need to recognize um, other churches and... and um, we need to represent the kingdom in exercising the keys. The, our society needs it, don't they? They need, they need to know Jesus. They need to know who, who, uh, the true message of Jesus. They need to know who true Christians are, and so our church needs to do it. So to close, let me just summarize in closing. The world needs the church to be the church. Your fellow members needs our church to be the church. Other Christians and other churches need our church to be the church. We need to embrace and embody, not advanced, but basic Christianity. And what is basic Christianity? Recognizing Jesus, rejoicing in the blessing of God revealing himself to you, resting on Jesus, the ultimate builder of the church, and representing Jesus and the kingdom of heaven together as a, as a local church family, which means you're a member of a local church. So brothers and sisters, be who you are. Embrace your privileged position given to you by the grace of the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus. Let's pray. give you a few seconds here to just pray on your own and then I'll pray. Lord, take the multitude of words and grant clarity, conviction, joy, revelation, fruit, faithfulness, resolve in our hearts and souls, not just individually, but even as a church family and in the other churches represented here. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're building us, you're building the church, that you're serving. And so we gladly give you honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.